This is episode number 233, The Consummate Athlete with Molly Herford. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Especially for athletes who also work other jobs and do other things and have families and stuff, I think it's important to kind of remember we do have to take this holistic view of our lives. We can't just, or we shouldn't just separate our training and only write about how our training went and forget the fact that we had a huge report due at work or had all of these deadlines to meet or didn't sleep because the dog was up several times at night or all of these other lifestyle factors, these all play into how our training is going. So journaling is a great way to sort of bring all of that together and start digesting it better. I hope everyone is having an absolutely fabulous week. And I'm so thankful that you guys are here listening to the show. And it means the world to me, all the messages and the Instagram stories that you've been sharing on social media. It just makes my day whenever I see those. So thank you so much. And thank you for all of your ratings and reviews. And if you haven't done so yet, just take a few seconds. It really does help others find the show. Today's podcast was such a joy to record with one of my favorite people, Molly Herford, who's been on the show more than once, talking about some of my favorite subjects, the things that make a consummate athlete. We talked about things like sticking to habits and things like a good relationship with the number on the bathroom scale and athletic identity and journaling and even head-to-toe skincare and a good 30-second bedtime habit. Some of these topics are regular topics on the show and some of the topics you'll actually learn some new things about, so I'm excited for you. And speaking of learning, have you checked out my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy? That's right, folks. I have launched a mental skills training course on how to build mental toughness. Mental toughness is a skill you can train. Confidence is a skill that you can train. And you can also increase your motivation, build resilience. And there are scientifically and real world proven mindset training methods that I use in this course. It has 22 video lessons. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, Sonia, I don't have time to add in any more things into my life. The lessons are bite-sized. They're three to five minutes each. And that's why there's 22 of them comprising of four different modules on wider topics. We go into the science of positive psychology, of sports psychology, of some mindfulness-based training techniques, and give you real-world practices so that you can apply them not only to your cycling, but to your daily lives as well. If you head on over to sonyalooney.com, you'll see Mindset Course in the menu. You can also find it at moxieandgrit.com. I'll also make sure to link it up in the show notes. And if you sign up for my newsletter, which is at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, you get a free confidence worksheet so that you can work on focusing on the right things during your day to build that confidence. And again, confidence is a skill that you can train, but it's something that you have to choose to focus on every day. And this worksheet shows you how. So if you want the free worksheet, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter And if you want to go way more in depth into all of these wonderful things in the world of mental toughness, check out the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. Okay, so let's talk some more about Molly Herford. Molly is the co-host of the Consummate Athlete Podcast, which is an amazing podcast and I highly recommend it. And today she's talking about her new book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, which she co-authored with her husband, Peter Glassford. 
Molly Herford has built her career with several aims in mind, and she definitely lives by these terms. Write constantly, which she definitely does. She has written more books than I can count. Race often, travel frequently, and live on her own terms, and mostly outside. Molly has been on this podcast a couple of times because she contributes so much to our community. She's the author of books on cycling and nutrition, including a book about saddle sores, and it's really popular. She has also written an athlete sponsorship guide and has a course on how to be a sponsored athlete that you can find on ProKit that is also linked in the show notes. She also has a series called Shred Girls, a young adult fiction series focused on getting girls on bikes. Molly and Peter say, a consummate athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And in this episode, we do a deep dive into what it means to be a consummate athlete. So let's dive right in. Molly, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun to get to chat with you. I know. We need to plan more podcasts just so we can spend more time talking or just actually make real time in life to talk more, I guess. <laughs> hey, you are one of the very few people who I actually do regular Skype calls with just to catch up because I feel like we've been operating in like the same spheres and like these weird parallel lives for the last, I don't know, decade or so. I know. And like baby and your baby dog dropped in. It kind of was like a little disruption bomb. It's true. Yes. Crying on your end, woofing on mine. It's it's a problem. (laughs) It's a a problem. It's a process. (laughs) So I'm really excited about your new book that came out. What number of book is this for you? You've written so many. Oh my gosh. I actually keep trying to count and it sort of depends on if we're counting editions of the, uh, the saddle sore book. If we're not counting both editions, I think this one is seven. Seventh book. Yeah, seven. I just got called a chronic book writer by a friend of mine. And I was like, that is the best way to describe me ever. I like it. Chronic book writer. (laughs) Chronic almost makes it sound like you have a problem. You know what? I would say it actually is a problem, to be honest. I need you to rub off on me because I need to start that bad habit. It's actually, I think, quite a good habit to be able to sit down and commit to writing a whole book because it's it's really freaking hard. I don't think people understand how hard it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've been lucky because I've been able to jump between fiction and nonfiction in the last few years. And I think that's actually made it a lot easier because when I have no ideas left for fiction, I can turn to nonfiction. And usually I have like an outline that I'm working off of. So it's it's fairly easy to kind of pick up, you know, what you're working on there. And then the fiction just kind of gets dragged out of you kicking and screaming when you when you finally give in and sit down. Now, what about writing a book with your husband? Uh, yeah, the fact that I'm still married is a pretty big testament to what I'm going to say is his patience level, not mine. Yeah, it turns out writing a book with your partner is pretty hard. Luckily, Peter has been, I mean, he's been coaching for 20 years now, which is crazy to me. So a lot of the practical information and knowledge in the book is down to him, but he also is smart enough to know that I'm going to be the better writer of the two of us. So he was willing to kind of, you know, information dump, and then I was able to kind of turn it into the actual readable book. So, you know, in that sense, we've kind of played off each other better than if we were both trying to be writers and both trying to be coaches, I think. That's awesome. I think he's really lucky to have you and to have somebody to help put that into this beautiful, polished writing form, because it's hard to do that. It's hard to get the organization right in a book and also to make it interesting and readable where you're not just rambling on. Yeah, that's definitely 
you know, an issue that both of us had throughout it. I think, yeah, it was super helpful to go through it with someone and be able to go back and forth. It was a fun, very different experience than my normal. I've written this. It's done. Check, print, move on. <laughs> or check, print, send to editor. This was check, print, send to Peter. He sent back to me and, you know, would be like, we need to fix this. Or we need. To... I think he could have gone the next five years just constantly changing little tiny things. But at some point we had to be like, well, we want it to be out and in people's hands and actually helping people, not tweaking where the comma goes in a certain sentence. So that was interesting. Yeah, the perfectionism and the preparation can make it so you never actually get anything done. And I'm sure everyone listening to this has been in that in some way or form. Yeah, I often say, like, I'm definitely more of the, like, let's get something out and, you know, we'll figure it out as we go. And, you know, we went through a bunch of iterations and drafts on this, and I'm I'm super proud of the, the finished product. But, yeah, we easily could have let perfectionism just keep it from coming out for another two years, at which point, you know, now we've, we've kind of missed that opportunity to help people out, especially right now when everyone kind of really needs that leg up on the, the healthy habits side of things, I think. Yeah. And I think something important to be taken away from this for people is like, no matter what you're working on or what you're dreaming of working on, get started and put it out there. And it's never going to be perfect. There's never going to be like an end product. You're never going to have enough research. Like you can research forever and ever and ever. Get started and put it out there because, man, it feels good when you do that. And then knowing that you can come back. And like you mentioned, Molly, you do you've done multiple editions of your saddle sore book. So you can come back and do another edition. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, the first version of the Saddlesaur book like makes me cringe to think about it. But on the flip side, I also am very aware that the two years between edition one and edition two, there were hundreds of women who actually kept writing because they, you know, read about not wearing underwear with their chamois or what chamois cream was and how much to use and all of that kind of stuff. So if that information hadn't been out there, I, I don't know how many of them would have kept writing. So yeah, I could have, you know, taken another two years before, like before putting it out. But I think it was better to get that in the hands of women who desperately, desperately needed it. <laughs> so what makes a consummate athlete? Oh, my gosh. So we really like the idea of consummate athlete because when we when we kind of came up with the idea for our podcast, The Consummate Athlete, I was thinking about being the James Bond of athletes. You know, he's the consummate gentleman where he can, you know, go play poker in Monaco and then like skydive out of a helicopter and then, you know, target shoot like a boss and just all of these other amazing things. And I wanted to be the kind of athlete who, you know, could get up and go for a century gravel ride with friends and then the next day, you know, jump into like a half marathon on trails and then, you know, maybe hit up a CrossFit workout at some point that week or go for a swim or try kiteboarding or something like that or, you know, jump into cross-country skiing, I guess is the more winter appropriate one there. Just someone who could be this all-around strong, healthy athlete who, yeah, isn't afraid of trying all of these new things. I think, you know, a lot of us have gotten really into one specific sport. And, you know, often that comes at a cost, right? Like, you know, we don't, we're really into cycling, so we don't do any work on our core or we're really into running, but now we have all of these, you know, stretch fracture injuries and stuff because we haven't been taking care of any strength or, you know, we get injured and now we have all of these like mental hurdles because we're sidelined and we have no other alternatives that we could do instead. So yeah, being a consummate athlete is sort of being this all around healthy human and strong athlete. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something 
I would, I'll call myself out on is I am a very one dimensional athlete and I love other sports. Like I played tennis and soccer growing up, like at a high level and I love running, but I have a hard time letting go of, it's almost like an insecurity of if I stop riding my bike so much, what if I'm not going to be as good as I was by picking up these other things? And it's ridiculous because I know the science and I know the anecdotal evidence as well. And it's just really hard for me to let go. So if somebody else is listening and they're like, oh, yeah, like I can relate with Sonia, even though I wouldn't admit it in a public forum that I'm, you know, worried about it. What are some tips people can do or that I can do to get out of that rut and be brave enough to say, "Okay, like I'm only going to ride my bike maybe three days a week over the winter and pick up some other sports? Yeah, I mean, well, I think you you sort of said the first thing is you you're aware of the science. So I think it's it's first just coming to the realization that oh, all of this other cross training can actually help me with my goal sport. And we're not saying you have to hang up the bike or anything like that. We're just saying, you know, maybe there's these other things that you can be adding in that will help you on the bike, but also then help you, you know, with your everyday life. Like Peter often, we often reference this, he sees a lot of clients who end up with, you know, massive back pain or, you know, a slip disc or something like that, not from cycling, but from having their like three-year-old come running and jump at them and they catch them and then the back goes out. And then they're off the bike for like three months because of that. While, you know, one or two strength training sessions a week would have armored them against that happening. So, you know, if you start kind of thinking through your life, sure, you know, strength training and like developing your upper body might not necessarily help make you a faster time trialist or road cyclist, but it's probably going to help prevent injuries that would otherwise cause you to be off of your bike for weeks at a time. So you can almost start by just rationalizing your way to okay, I know strength training is going to make me healthier, but how is it going to make me a better cyclist? Okay, it's going to help me get injured less. Okay, there's your there's your reason it's going to help your cycling. And then I think the other way is to stop thinking about it as like a either or. I'm more of a more and kind of person. So I love, you know, I've probably said this probably on this podcast before because I'm evangelical about it. The five to 10 minutes in the morning of doing some yoga and some core work you know, the 10 minutes is over an hour a week, which is over 50 hours a year of core work and yoga, which is a lot when you think about it like that. But, you know, most people won't bother taking that like five minutes in the morning or 10 minutes in the morning to just do a few planks, do a few sun salutations. But that's sort of like the sneakiest way to start getting into becoming kind of a stronger, more all around athlete, little stuff like that, put a pull up bar, you know, on the doorway to your bathroom. So whenever you go into the bathroom or the bedroom or wherever, you can either hang from the pull up bar just to kind of let your let your chest open up, let your shoulders open up or do a couple pull ups or work your way to doing a couple of pull ups. So just little things like that, that you can stack throughout your day is maybe a, a softer introduction than you going out and buying a stand up paddleboard and doing that four days a week. Yeah, I love the cue of seeing the pull-up bar in the doorway and every time you walk through that doorway so you can have it stack. And I also love what you said about starting with something small, like five minutes seems achievable. Maybe it's one minute if five minutes seems insurmountable so that these habits and these actions you take compound, like that's that's huge. Exactly. Yeah. I remember we, we had this ultra runner, Jax Mariash, on our podcast years ago, and she mentioned that when she's just brewing her French press of coffee in the morning, she does squats while she's letting that brew. And I was like, that is brilliant. 
in sort of everyday life. And that really stuck with me. And I think you've actually mentioned push-ups. I think your husband was doing push-ups or something a while back. Now I'm like creepily like mentioning (laughs) podcasts from like two years ago from you. But I remember you talking about that. So you you know. Yeah, he does push-ups when the espresso machine is heating up. Yeah, so I think just finding ways to add in little bits throughout the day. And I need to get back into that myself. So thank you for the motivation. <laughs> Anytime. I mean, you have you have the ultimate excuse. And actually, maybe you could be my experiment here. I've been dying to find a new mom to try doing this. Squatting with your baby, doing like 10 squats a day, holding him. Because that way, as he gets bigger and bigger, your weight actually progresses that you're like goblet squatting. So I feel like that's the best way to get like use that mom strength. Oh, my gosh. I was like holding my breath. I'm like, don't interrupt. But there's something called an ergo baby. And it's like you can wear your baby on the front or on the back. And I prefer to put him in the ergo baby instead of the stroller for walks because then I'm like carrying him on the front and I'm walking the dog. So what happens when the dog poops? Well, you got to <laughs> goblet squat down and pick up that poop. So I actually do squats on the walk automatically. But then all day long, if you're carrying the baby, you have to like squat down to pick stuff up. And my upper body has also like gotten a lot stronger. It's visible in the mirror from just carrying a 22 pound little boy around. So maybe becoming a parent is like the ultimate cross training. I think so. The fittest I think I ever was was when I nannied for three young kids, like under the age of five. And it was I was just like a human jungle gym for them for (laughs) two years. And I think, yeah, it's like the most jacked I've ever been. I had biceps for days. (laughs) So let's talk about sticking to a habit because we talked about how to create a new one and some strategies around that. And also just to repeat, you mentioned for the five minutes of core in the morning, you could do planks or sun salutations. But like, how do you stick to it? Because like I mentioned, I've sort of gotten out of the habit of doing some of these things. And I tend to have a difficult time after a few months like sticking to it because I just get into a new routine. So how can we stick to our habits? Oh, totally. This, I mean, it's so easy to, you know, quote unquote, start a habit. It's a lot harder to actually continue with it. I think so personally for me, the the thing that I find the most just satisfying is the ticking things off of a to-do list. So I actually use an app called Todoist, but I know there's like a bunch of others. You could even set, like you could do it with reminders or uh, your GCAL type uh, to-do list. I have things set as recurring tasks. So every day my thing says, you know, yoga 6 a.m. And I get to check it off every single day. And it makes life so much more satisfying to get to tick that off you know, otherwise it's left kind of overdue all day and it'll drive me a little crazy. So that's, that's for me, my, my biggest thing, like to the point where even if I'm in an airport, I will still end up doing, you know, a couple planks or something. Okay. When I, when I was in the airport before the world (laughs) changed, um, I would do a couple planks just for the sake of being able to tick that thing off of my to-do list. So it would move to the next day. Uh, So that would be my personal first thing. And I know for a lot of people, the accountability partner kind of thing is super helpful. I'm not necessarily this person, but, you know, we talk about it because for a lot of people, that's super helpful, whether, you know, whether it is, you know, your actual partner, whether it's a friend, whether it's a coach, just someone who's kind of constantly checking in on you can be really or doing it with you can be super helpful. I know I have friends in town here that will get up at like four in the morning to go for their runs because that's the time they have. And 
when you're up at four in the morning and you've made a plan to meet someone else, like you have to go on that run because you can't leave the other person like waiting at the stop sign at four in the morning. That's just cruel. So that's how they <laughs> they stay on top of it. <laughs> yeah, I like that you point out that people have different ways of staying motivated. Like some people need external accountability while people like you are more internally motivated. And maybe you just need like a checklist on your phone instead of a person keeping you accountable. Yeah. Well, and you and I talked about deadlines even before we hit record. And I think both of us are, if we have a deadline, we'll get it done. It's a little harder when you're talking about daily habits to say that, you know, you have a deadline on it, but maybe, you know, if your daily habit, if you know, it's building up to something, I think that can really help. So if you say that, you know, in three months, I want to be able to do two pull-ups, then you sort of know that every day you have to either hang on that pull-up bar or, you know, attempt to do a pull-up or do a pull-up or, you know, do a couple throughout the day if you're actually going to get there. So, you know, maybe for some people setting an actual deadline on the calendar and even backing it out to remind yourself of it every week is, is a good way to get started on that. I'm going to move on to some of the other things in this book. So people should definitely buy this book because even if you don't like reading, this is a great book for you because the chapters aren't really long and you get a lot of information in a really like in a page or two. So definitely get this book. And also another thing I like about this book is you can actually pick an area that you want to work on. You don't have to read the book consecutively. You can sort of use it as a resource guide. So I think that's awesome. You did well, a really great job with that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was it was really fun to kind of think through all of the different little habits that people can do sort of throughout their day too. The goal wasn't to talk about how to improve your training. It was more to talk about how to improve everything that goes around your training and how you think about your training to make it more efficient. Because like, let's be real, we don't all have the ability to add more hours to our training time. Like that's just not something that we can do. But if we can improve, you know, our, our little health outcomes sort of throughout the day, then we're going to be able to actually improve our training without upping our hours. So let's talk about meditation. This goes along with habits. And something that I loved in that section was you guys talked about meditation and heart rate variability, because a lot of people have a difficult time committing to meditation because they think, well, I don't really feel any different or I can't tell if this is working. So can you tell us about meditation and heart rate variability? Yes, this is how this is the only way that I was able to get into meditation when I when I first started with it. So heart rate variability, you know, you can track it using your phone app. It tracks sort of the the space between your heartbeats and it kind of gives you a sense of how recovered you are from, you know, your yesterday's workout, yesterday's stressors. It lets you know sort of just where you're at physically. And I love using the HRV for training app with this because you have to actually sit with your phone and it's measuring your heart rate through your fingertip pulse. So you, you have to sit and you have to be quiet and still for it to measure properly. And you can set it for one, two or five minutes, I think. And I was doing it for, for the five minutes and I had to sit quietly. And suddenly I realized oh, okay, this is a way that I can actually quantify my meditation. Gotta get where that check it is mark. a to-do list. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It let me check the thing off because I did my HRV. It like gave me a score. It was this, you know, very like objective and subjective values were kind of right there. So it was a thing that I was going to do. But I had to sit in stillness for five minutes to do it. So it actually like forced me to meditate. And that was the only way that I could actually shift into where I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to do this. 
And, you know, it's it's been a few years and I still do it. And it still really works, as it turns out. Awesome. So you mentioned objective and subjective whenever you were looking at this reading. And I noticed that subjective is a theme in the book that is in a few of the chapters talking about like how we feel and even recording key metrics. So can you talk about how consummate athletes can view their lives more subjectively as part of training? Yes, absolutely. So there are so many devices at this point. You know, we have, I mean, at this point, we have trainers that are running our, our lives, like smart trainers for our bike that are just telling us how to pedal and what to do. And, you know, we're just following along with the screen in front of us. And, you know, we also have like a heart rate strap and like an armband and a sleep tracker and like all of these things. And that's, that's all fantastic. That's, you know, the data is super useful. But a lot of the time, I think we've outsourced how we feel to these other devices to the point where, you know, I know some people who, and I, I just said HRV is great, and I think it is, but I know some people who will look at HRV, and that's that's how they tell how they're feeling. And that's the only way they know how they're feeling. They have kind of almost lost the ability to kind of look inward and be like, you know, I am fatigued today. It's like they have to have this metric that they're looking at to be like, yep, I'm fatigued today. Like, don't feel it, but yes, I, I suppose it told me so, so I must be tired. Um, or, you know, it told me so, so I must be wide awake and good to go, even though we feel like absolute crap. So I think it's just, it's so important to, in addition to recording all of your actual, like, objective data, whether it's power or heart rate or, you know, miles or meters or whatever you want to record, I think it's so important to take a minute and also just reflect on how you're feeling, uh, you know, both when you wake up and you're thinking about your your HRV. I like the HRV for training app because it actually makes you answer a few questions about your subjective, you know, how did you sleep? How did you feel? That kind of stuff. But you know, Peter is always uh, yelling at clients with with training peaks where, you know, they upload their their data files, but they don't add anything to the comments. And a data file doesn't really tell you how an interval felt for someone or, you know, how they felt finishing the ride or if they were upset about their power numbers or really psyched on it or if they rode in the worst weather imaginable or if it was like a gorgeous sunny day or they rode with friends. So recording just a few little subjective notes around how how a workout went, how you felt. You know, I'm a fan of doing just like a quick little two-line journal in the morning where I just kind of write down plans for the day, how I'm feeling, nothing fancy, just like a quick little check-in. You know, I think just taking a few seconds a day to just check in with with how you actually feel, not just how a computer says you feel, is so important. And getting to be a lost art, which is a very sad thing to say. Yeah, I think that the computer will make people second guess themselves. Like an example would be if they look at their HRV and it's it's good. They're like, OK, like I have high HRV today. I'm good to go. But then they don't feel good on their bike and they're like, well, my HRV is good. So maybe this is just in my head and I need to just keep pushing through this when really you probably need to go home. And the weird thing about HRV or it's not weird, I guess, but there are multiple systems at play in the body and heart. certainly other things affect heart rate variability, but that is primarily based on your heart. And there are other things that could be fatigued or other things that are out of whack. Like maybe you are deficient in some nutrient or maybe your hormones are out of whack or 
maybe you didn't sleep well, but your HRV is still good. Like I'm somebody that can have a really great HRV and I, I've used, you know, the different wrist tracking straps and all these things. And it's like, yeah, you're good to go. And I would say, honestly, 50% of the time I'm not good to go. So HRV and, and looking at these things that the computer tells you is that's based on an algorithm. That's based on a large mass of data and it's making assumptions on you as a person. And really it's about knowing yourself and using these measurements as sort of like bumpers whenever you're bowling as a guidepost to keep you on track, but also you still need to be the one bowling with the ball. Ah, that is such a good analogy. I love that so much. Oh my gosh. I was like, I made it, I'm making up something cool. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I want to like, I want to write that down. I want to make an infographic with a bowling lane right now. That's (laughs) so good. Thanks. (laughs) So let's talk about some other subjective things. Mood. What about mood? Because you can be in a bad mood and still perform well, but if you're in a bad mood repeatedly, should you keep training? Yeah, like that's such a good question. I think typically, yeah, like if you're consistently feeling anything, it's usually a sign or a symptom, right? So if you're just always in a bad mood, even if you can keep doing your your running or your riding, usually the persistent bad mood is like a good sign that something is off. I mean, honestly, a bad mood can even be a sign or symptom of red S. So, you know, you might actually be lacking energy around your, your training. You know, I think for me, if I'm having a bad mood consistently for a few days, like I'm going to back off. I'm going to go for walks instead of runs. I'm going to do yoga instead of strength. I'm going to spin easy instead of, you know, doing my intervals. I'm just going to try to take things down and see if that helps. I mean, honestly, when we're talking about this kind of stuff, it's so tempting to just stay the course and want to keep going with our training because we're kind of scared about what's going to happen if we stop for a couple of days. Like, will we come back to it? Of course, we're going to come back to it. Like, it's fine. You can take it easy for a couple of days and see where your body's at without worrying that you're just going to be, you know, gone forever. Um, I think one of the things I always say with, with taking time off of training is if you feel guilty about it, do something that's similar to training, right? So the, the walk instead of a run or do something that's like not sitting around watching Netflix. Maybe it's, you know, you finally organize your sock drawer or your, you know, gear drawer, gear closet, do something that's still productive to your training but take that day off. Yeah, I think that asking yourself why you feel guilty is another step down that path. Like, why do you need to be achieving something every single second? And certainly I'm not saying that I don't feel that guilt because I do feel that guilt. And that's why I know that it's important to ask yourself that question. And I think that sometimes you do need to sit down and watch Netflix and not be doing something every single second. But I like your example of like, if you need to have something to check (laughs) off, then you can. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I will fully admit to sitting down and chilling out with Netflix at least once a week. (laughs) Can you, um, you, you mentioned Red S and I know you guys have on the Consummate Athlete podcast have recorded an entire podcast about this, but can you say what that is? Because people listening may not have heard of it. 
Yeah. So this is sort of the the new way of thinking about what was originally called the female athlete triad. Um, and what it is, is relative energy deficiency in sport. So the difference with this is it's not just females dealing with this. It's it's anyone really. And the female athlete triad typically ended up with someone who was, you know, underweight and suffering from stress fractures and had lost their period and was anemic. But now what we're realizing is there's a lot of problems that can come just from not appropriately fueling around your training. So even if you're, you know, at a normal body composition or you're, you know, eating enough, you know, total calories throughout the day, if you're not fueling around your training, so if you're not, you know, fueling before, during and after appropriately, you can actually end up with some of these problematic downstream effects like stress fractures, like, you know, serious fatigue, like mood issues, just all kinds of hormonal problems that come from that. So it's it's a really tricky topic that a lot of research is going into now, um, but it's been really interesting to follow. And it's something that, you know, I think a lot more people struggle with than we previously knew about. Awesome. And I'll link that in the show notes, um, that episode you recorded. I think it was it with Ann Guzman or Guzman? Ann Guzman. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. She's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved that one. It was it was such a good one to to get to talk about with her. And we've also had Danelle Kabush on, who's a sports psych out of BC, and she talked about sort of more of the the body image mental side of it, but how body image can kind of contribute to problems around red ass because a lot of especially younger female athletes have the tendency to not eat around their training. So they they do a lot of, you know, very low cat like low fuel rides, barely eating during, barely eating after. And then, you know, 10 hours later, they're kind of binging on a bunch of junk food because their bodies are completely starved. And the the problem with that is then they're they're not actually they're in this weird position where they're not fueling the rides. They're performing terribly, but they're also not even like getting to the the weight that they're aiming for because they're still eating all of the calories, but just not actually using it during their training. So it's kind of a a really weird, interesting thing. Let's talk about weight for a second. You guys did talk about weight and weighing yourself and the number on the scale. What is your take on weighing yourself and body image? Oh my gosh. I will say I hate the scale. <laughs> it is my least favorite thing. Because I, I personally feel like there are very few people who are ever going to get on a scale and be completely happy with what it says. So generally speaking, I am not a fan of using the scale. Now, that said, I, I do think we, you know, as athletes, obviously, for me, I use a soft tape measure once a week or once every two weeks and just check in on waist and hip measurements just to kind of just make sure that I'm staying, staying the course and staying within a certain range. But I think we put a lot of emphasis on the number on the scale. And it's it's something that we've been trying to kind of come away from. We think our, our general philosophy is that if you're training appropriately, fueling appropriately, the body composition stuff is going to work itself out. I think Dean, Dean Golich, one of our first ever podcast guests who, you know, coached Olympians like Katerina Nash said, you know, if you're training right and you're eating well, the weight is going to work itself out. He rarely has his athletes get on a scale or worry about race weight or watts per kilogram, because if they're doing the training, they're they're going to end up where they're supposed to be. And I think that's very easy to forget, especially in the short term. When we first get into this, we're like, oh my gosh, watts per kilogram, all this stuff. And it's like, well, watts are actually a lot easier to, to raise than just to drop the kilograms. So 
I'm always a fan of that first and then everything else will kind of follow. Yeah, I had um, your coach, David Roach and Megan Roach on the show. I guess at the time when this comes out, it'll have been last year. But they said it's all about finding your strong. And one person's strong physically may look so different from another person's strong. And the number on the scale really doesn't have anything to do with that. And I can personally attest to like I've gotten the number on the scale to a number that I want it at. And I wasn't as strong as I was when I weighed five pounds more. So like you need to find the range that works best for you. And also with body image stuff, like sometimes people think, well, if I weigh a certain number on the scale, I'm going to look a certain way in the mirror. And that's just not the case. So the yeah. consummate athlete thing about like being strong in your entire body, that is going to give you more of the results that you want to see in the mirror. Yeah, exactly. Like I have never once gotten on a scale, seen a number and then like looked in the mirror and I was like, yep, you're there. You're good now. <laughs> like I, that doesn't actually happen. That's like this weird New Year's resolution fantasy that we all have that if we just lose five pounds, we're magically going to look a way that is going to make us just like thrilled at the person in the mirror. But I guarantee if most of us lost the five pounds, we'd look in the mirror and like not even notice it. Or find something else that we were mad about. So, so I'm all about celebrating where we're at right now. Yeah, and there's like cognitive distortions too. Like you could lose the five pounds and to everybody else, you might look like you lost a little bit of weight and you could look in the mirror and still see the same thing. So not you, in some ways, you can't even trust that. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in terms of like we're talking about, you know, weight loss or just being a strong, healthy athlete and not being focused on the weight. And this brings us to athletic identity. And you guys have a little bit about athletic identity and taking it, you know, towards even the number on the scale. Like some people think that I have to weigh a certain number on the scale to be, quote, fit or to be considered an athlete. Or I have to have bulging biceps in order to be an, an you know, athlete. How do you guys break down athletic identity? Yeah. So this was a super important part for us because I think for people to actually take the time or be willing to kind of put these habits into place that sort of aren't just, you know, I, I take off my training once a day. It's, you know, how I'm eating, how I'm sleeping, how I'm living, how I'm, you know, organi like organizing my gear, all of that stuff. I think if you believe that you're an athlete, if you see yourself as an athlete, it is a whole lot easier to have the healthy habits that an athlete would. And I'm using quotes around that. Um, so part of it is a little bit of like fake it till you make it. Like if you can tell yourself I'm an athlete and therefore I insert healthy habit here and, you know, not I weigh this much but I meal prep every Sunday so that I have healthy lunches throughout the week or I, you know, make notes about my training so that my coach knows what to, you know, how to tweak my training for the next week or I know how to tweak my training for the next week because I've thought about how I feel. You know, because I'm an athlete, I take time visualizing in the morning about how I want my workout to go. So I think the first thing with the athlete identity is if you're listening to this, you should probably fake it till you make it because you you want to be an athlete. Therefore, let's just call you an athlete. But I also think, I mean, athlete doesn't mean that you're getting paid or that, you know, you're on podiums. Like athlete to me just means that you are able to go out and perform something athletic. So if you can go out and go for a walk, if you can go out and go for a run or a ride or whatever, 
to me, you're an athlete. So I think we just need to kind of embrace that. Um, and as, as someone who is not an athlete as a kid, who was like the anti-athlete, like little punk rock kid who made fun of the athletes, apologies to anyone who's listening <laughs> to this that knew me when I was like young and mean, um, <laughs> you know, it's a hard, it's a hard identity to get used to if you didn't grow up with the idea that you, you were a, you know, high school athlete or a college athlete. But I think it's, it's such an important thing coming to terms with that. Yeah. And like, you don't even have to put a number plate or pin a number on yourself or be a whatever, play a team sport, be in a game to be an athlete. You just have to be somebody that wants to use your body. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, if we've learned anything in 2020, it's that you don't need a finish line to consider yourself an athlete because even the proest of pro athletes were sorely lacking in competition and finish lines this year. And I don't think any of them stopped calling themselves athletes because of it. Yeah. Like basically, if you're an athlete, there is no finish line because th that's an identity that you have. It's not a thing that you're going to check yeah, off. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that you talked about identity based exactly. habits, how if you are an athlete, your daily actions are votes and check marks for this is proof I'm an athlete because I care about my body. I care about my sleep. I move. I move my body. I maybe set new goals around things I'm trying to do. That's what makes you an athlete, not I won a race or I signed up for a race. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, in 50 years, like you're going to be a lot happier because you're healthy and not because of like your trophy shelf that you have sitting in your garage somewhere. So I think, you know, it's all about thinking about staying athletic for as long as possible. Being an athlete, like a lifelong athlete is, I think, so much more important to us for sure than being an athlete who's, you know, competitive this year and then just done with it. Um, it always makes me super sad when I hear about people who, you know, spend like a year where they say they're going to run a marathon and they spend like a year or two getting ready for it and like doing all this stuff. And then they run the marathon and like, boom, they hit their point B, they hit the finish line and now they're just done. Our goal is to get you to maybe get to that point B finish line, but then be thinking about what's next. What's the next adventure? Not necessarily be like, and okay, I'm done and dusted. I'm going to go sit on the couch and watch Netflix for the next 10 years. See you later. I do that for like a week. Sure. But let's get back to it. Yeah. And even like the pro cyclists who retire and then never ride a bike again. And all these things that you're talking about really pull in the themes of your book. Like being a consummate athlete means that you can be an athlete your entire life because you've been doing things so that you can stay healthy because you can be an athlete and you can go hard in one area, but you could not be healthy the rest of your life because you're not doing it in a way that's sustainable. Exactly. Yeah. Like the best examples of consummate athletes that we know aren't one, like aren't people who were, you know, super pro in their sport. And then, yeah, like, like you say, retire. And, you know, if you're, if you're at a Belgium cyclocross race, you can usually spot like the former world champions and stuff. And they've all gained somehow like gained like, you know, 80 pounds and, and like they're wearing track pants and like smoking. And you're just like, what, what? No, you were the, the best in the world. Um, usually the most consummate athletes that we know, like we know an 85 year old who's, you know, out fat biking in Northern Ontario right now. And, you know, nor in a normal year, he actually would have flown down to South America to go on some hiking treks and like backcountry camping things down there. And he never played professionally or, you know, raced professionally. He's just loved athletics his whole life. So that's who we're, we're more aspiring to be than, you know, the proest of the pro. Although, the proest of the pro could also be, you know, 
going on hiking treks when they're 85 too. So <laughs> we hope. And it sounds like um, yeah. <laughs> something that another like undercurrent of all this is being familiar with your inner narrative, because if you're doing all these things and you don't realize how you're feeling or why you're doing it or asking yourself maybe some hard questions, then it's harder to sustain it. And you talk about journaling in your book and you have some really great journal prompts. What are some of your favorite journal prompts? Oh my gosh. Well, every day I usually start with like the gratitude journal. And I know at this point, everyone has probably heard about gratitude journaling a billion and one times, but we're going to make it a billion and two because I do genuinely think that it is like the best way to sort of kick off your day and kind of get started from a place of positivity, which is not something that I am necessarily naturally known for. So for me, that's that's become really important. And it's never anything fancy or anything. I, I am not like a beautiful bullet journaler or anything like that. It is not precious. It is pretty unattractive. But I really like doing that. I love the the weekly review. That's sort of my biggest journaling thing, thinking about you know, what went well during the week, what could have changed. And this is not just training. I think it's especially for athletes who also work other jobs and do other things and have families and stuff. I think it's important to kind of remember, we do have to take this holistic view of our, our lives. We can't just, or we shouldn't just, you know, separate our training and only write about how our training went and, you know, forget the fact that we had a huge report due at work or, you know, had all of these deadlines to meet or didn't sleep because the dog was up several times at night or, you know, all of these other lifestyle factors, these all play into how our training is going. So journaling is sort of a great way to sort of bring all of that together and start digesting it better. So I like thinking about, you know, what happened during the week, how it went, what I could have improved on, what I did really well is always a nice one. And then I'm actually a huge fan of looking at the week ahead and thinking, what don't I need to do? I realized that's actually a bigger thing for me. Um, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. We both have just to-do lists that could go on forever with all of the projects that we're excited about doing and that we also have to do for work stuff. So every week I try to sit down with my journal and think through what do I have to do for the week to be good and what can I get rid of? What can I X off the list that will make my week even better? <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote down my three favorites from your list and my number one favorite was, what's one thing you could skip? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's so funny how often you like go through and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I could skip things. It didn't occur to me that I could, but I actually can without it really affecting me. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think it takes courage to leave that thing out once to see what would happen. And I mean, a funny example is like, say you went camping or you went somewhere and you had no cell phone service and you're like, oh my gosh, well, I'm somebody that updates my social media every single day or checks my email every single day. What's going to happen if I don't check my email today? And you feel like all this anxiety and like the world's going to melt down and everything's going to fall apart. And you realize like two days later, you turn on your phone. Yeah, you have more emails to go through, but chances are that there was nothing that was such an emergency that it can't wait or can't be skipped for a day. And sometimes we need to just skip that for a day so that our mind can have some rest. Exactly. Yeah. I love when I go camping and I get back and I'm like, oh, nothing happened. Huh. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. I, I don't, people don't need me as bad as I think. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So you, we, we talked about your book on saddle sores, but in your book, Consummate Athlete, you have skincare for basically every part of the body. Can we, like, and we don't actually hear about skincare very much, especially endurance athletes. Like you don't talk about that stuff. So can you talk about how people can take better care of their skin? Yes, this has been kind of an important thing for us in the past few years, especially as I get older and get grumpier with myself for not taking better care of my skin when I was younger. I'm actually really lucky. I've been able to give a lot of talks to younger cyclists or younger female cyclists lately. And I keep being like, okay, two things. One, take care of your dental health. And two, take care of your skincare while you're young, because these are things that you can't really get back as you get older, unfortunately. And it's very expensive, as it turns out, if you don't take care of them when you're younger. So um, that aside, um, I really like the skincare section because it's all stuff that I've, I've messed up over time. The funniest one for me was being in California for a training camp a couple of years ago, and I was breaking out horribly on my chin and on my forehead. And to the point where like I went and got a facial at like someone who was an expert in dealing with adult acne, and I was mm. so stressed and so upset about it. And then I realized, finally, that I was using a ton of sunscreen and I hadn't washed my helmet straps ever, mm. which, which is gross when you think about just how much like sweat and gunk gets on your helmet. I'm like smiling guiltily because um, so, I'm like, oh, you know, you're supposed to wash it? <laughs> exactly. It just doesn't really occur to you unless you've gone on like a muddy bike ride and you have like mud spray on your helmet, then you'll like strip, you know, you'll wash it down. But if you think about those nylon straps, they're up against your chin. You have sunscreen sprayed on. You have, you know, whatever else you have on your face. If you're wearing any kind of like foundation or moisturizer or anything, that's all getting on this helmet strap along with your sweat. It's rubbing. So you've got like a little bit of chafing going on, even if it's minor. Of course, you're going to be breaking out. <laughs> but we don't really think about this. Instead, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have a hormonal issue. Like, oh, no, acne on the chin means it's a hormone thing. And just totally panicked about it for no good reason. So, yeah, number as, as I go from like head to toe here. Yeah. Wash your helmet is is my best thing there. And actually, same with even the sunglass, like the nose piece. It gets gnarly <laughs> if you've ever like actually taken it apart. You're like, ugh. So yeah, just, just keeping everything as clean as possible. You know, for runners, our shoulders tend to get real sunburned real fast. So, you know, keeping an eye on our sunscreen for that and your back. You know, for cyclists, we've probably all seen the pictures of that one disastrous team kit that was like so thin and see-through that every rider ended up with like horrific sunburn on their back. So making sure that that's not you and that you're actually wearing sunscreen wherever you know, wherever is showing. And of course, the, you know, dermatologist recommended check your moles and make sure they're not, uh, you know, doing anything funky. I have a family history of skin cancer. So I'm like very sensitive to this in my older age. I would prefer to not have to have a bunch of moles removed. So I'm very like on top of that now. And then yeah, all the way down to the the saddle sore stuff, which is, you know, as I've talked about ad nauseum in, in my other book, um, you know, things like using the appropriate amount of chamois cream, which is a quarter size amount, not more than that. You don't want like a slip inside situation down there. Keeping everything clean and dry after our rides, 
not wearing underwear with our bib shorts. And, you know, for, for women or men who shave their legs for riding or go hairless on their legs while riding, figuring out what works well for you there. You know, I know some people for whom shaving is super uncomfortable and unpleasant and leads to a lot of razor burn and problems. And for them, waxing is the better way to go or just, you know, leaving their leg hair and like, oh, no, you're a little less arrow. Worse <laughs> things have happened. Um <laughs> So really just, it comes back to that same exact subjective thing, thinking about how your skin feels and, you know, thinking about it as one of the most important organs we have as athletes, right? Like, yeah, we can have all the, we can have fabulous quads or great calves, but if we're completely covered in cuts from our razor or we have saddle sores, so we're walking like cowboys, (laughs) um, (laughs) And, you know, all of the great quads and calves in the world are are not going to be helpful if we have skin issues. So we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about getting away from perfectionism and being able to get started on things. We've talked about compounding habits, sticking to habits, including things like meditation and doing things to become a consummate athlete. We've talked about red S. We've talked about weight and athletic identity and journaling. We've talked about a lot today and now skincare. So to wrap it up, what is your 30 second routine before bed? I saw that that was in the book and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So I love the idea of at night thinking through what is going to make my day tomorrow better. Because, you know, often we we go to bed with everything kind of like a little undone and we end up, you know, waking up feeling like we're scrambling or we end up skipping our morning routine because we didn't really set up for it. So before I go to bed, I just always make sure that, you know, my headphones and my Garmin are on their little charger. I have my little sport charging station very carefully set up. I make sure I have my glass of water next to my bed. So I have that sort of right away when I wake up. I make sure that my yoga mat or whatever I'm doing, you know, depending on where I am in the world at the moment, home. So my yoga mat never moves, but my yoga mat is always set up and it's ready to go for my my morning yoga session, which also means that my iPad is fully charged and out next to my yoga mat because I am not a fancy yoga person. I am watching trash TV on Netflix while I do my morning yoga because (laughs) that is what gets me to do it. (laughs) I love that. Thanks so much for saying that you don't have to be this like blissful yogi, like everything perfect. You can watch, uh, you know, your your favorite Netflix series that you don't want anyone to know about while you're doing yoga. (laughs) Highly recommend Riverdale. Just saying. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people get this book? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is always so much fun. And I'm excited to have you back on the Consummate Athlete podcast again soon, hopefully. And people can find the book just over at consummateathlete.com, which is where we have pretty much everything that we do. So that's the best spot for us. Awesome. Thanks, Molly. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the show, you guys. I always appreciate your comments. And also, if you want to hear somebody that you haven't heard yet, I'd love to hear your feedback. The show has been going for almost four years, which is really hard to imagine. And that's a lot of guests. And I'm always open to new ideas. If you'd like to help support my work, please donate to the show on Patreon or PayPal. Go to sonyaloney.com slash podcasts, and you'll find where you can donate It goes to paying my audio editor who has been with me since episode one. So you can imagine the number of hours that he has put in to make sure that this show sounds amazing. 
And it's been a big investment on my part and I so appreciate those who are willing to share the investment with me. You guys are awesome and I'm rooting for you. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.